Hello, Gills, and welcome to another Gills Talk podcast. Today, we have an interview with Dr. Lisa Whiteneck. She is a biology professor at Allegheny College, where she is studying biomechanics, paleobiology, and the evolution of sharks. So we are switching gears from looking at live sharks to looking at our dinosaur sharks and looking through the fossil record, which is what Dr. Lisa Whiteneck does. So before we get started into that interview, let's talk about sharks and how long they have been here along in our world. So sharks are pretty old. <laughs> they are over 450 million years old and they have lived through every mass extinction that we've had here on our planet Earth. So they are a pretty incredibly hardy species and they've been able to adapt and change throughout those many millions of years. And with that, you know, we have been able to track their evolutionary history and being able to show just how amazing sharks truly are um, with having them be around for so long, scientists estimate there's over 3,000 species of sharks um, that have ever lived with currently, we have around a little over 500 shark species that currently live in our oceans. But, you know, being such an old species, you know, there's so much to learn about the shark. And this is why you'll hear of Dr. Lisa Whiteneck doing what she does and being able to kind of put those puzzle pieces together of our dinosaur sharks and being able to learn more about them. You all are probably familiar with probably the most famous prehistoric shark, which would be the Megalodon, which came about 60 million years ago. And the Megalodon is estimated to be the biggest ocean predator to ever exist. So it is estimated they were anywhere between 60 to 65 feet in length and weighing over 30 tons. And with that, their teeth were incredibly large. They have teeth that were up to seven inches in length, but Contrary to popular belief, I know we see a lot of movies and TV shows that show the Megalodon, but they are extinct, and we know this by looking at that fossil record as well. So yes, the Megalodon used to be around, but it is not around anymore. In our interview with Lisa, we do not get into the Megalodon, but she does talk about some really interesting prehistoric sharks that she has been able to study their fossils from um, throughout her research experience. And another shark fact to give to you all is that when we do look at shark fossils, they are strictly looking at their teeth. This is the only thing that we have on record for fossils with sharks because of how their skeleton is set up. So if you do not know, shark skeleton is made up of cartilage, which is that soft tissue like our nose and our ears are made up of. So because of that soft tissue, it does break down in those millions and millions of years of them being within the fossil record. So we really only have teeth to be able to kind of think and put together what these prehistoric sharks did look like, which makes Lisa's research so much more interesting by just being able to look at teeth and put together what our prehistoric sharks might, might have done and what they have looked like. So without further ado, let's get into that interview with Dr. Lisa Whiteneck. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Lisa Whiteneck. So welcome, Lisa. For having me. I'm excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I haven't really spoken to you since the Gills Club Symposium, oh gosh, like five years ago now almost. Yeah, <laughs> it's been, been a minute. <laughs> I know. So it's very nice to see you. Unfortunately, it yeah, has to be vir virtual. But um, so yeah. again, welcome very much. Um, but for our listeners, maybe don't know much about you and your work. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe what your current line of work is and what your research is in? Sure. Yeah. So um, 
I'm a professor of both biology and geology at Allegheny College, which is about an hour and a half north of Pittsburgh. And my main thing that I study shark-wise is the evolution of their teeth um, across their entire fossil record. So sharks have been around for at least 400 million year years, probably a lot more. Um, and their teeth have changed shape considerably throughout that entire time. When you go back and you look at really old shark teeth, they don't look like your typical great white or bull shark or even something like a dogfish. They're um, all sorts of weird shapes and sizes and I wanna know why. <laughs> <laughs> it's been bothering me since I was an undergrad and I'm still trying to figure it out. So yeah, I study those teeth and modern sharks and really, really dead sharks, so extinct sharks. And I mostly use something called biomechanics to do that. So taking physics and engineering techniques and applying those to shark teeth to figure out how they work. So I know with a lot of the Gills Club scientists that we're interviewing here on the podcast, they are studying sharks that are alive. So what made mm -hmm. you really want to get into looking at, you know, these, these dinosaur sharks? So I'm glad you said dinosaur because it was exactly that. Um, I was one of those kids, you know how all kids go through that dinosaur phase? Yeah. I never got out of the dinosaur phase. Um, so, you know, I was that kid in sixth grade, probably wearing my dinosaur sweatshirt when all the other kids were well past that. And I also loved sharks. And so growing up, I had um, a, this Reader's Digest book that, my grandmother had that was all about North American wildlife and I have it now and the pages about sharks are super dog-eared so I always was interested in both and then when I got to college and I was going to be a high school chemistry teacher chemistry and I didn't get along so well in college so I changed my major to geology and my advisor was like well I think I want you to study these fossil starfish so I'm like well okay I guess and I went on this dinosaur dig and came back and he's like, well, you know, there are these shark teeth that are associated with these 320 million year old starfish. And I kind of never looked back. I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know sharks are that old. I didn't know about their fossil record until like my senior year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. Um, they'll just kind of see how like the process of how that goes. But I'm sure with looking at fossil teeth, um, I'm sure there's many challenges to that and what you work in. So what are some challenges that you do face? With both fossils and living sharks, I live in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so, um, right, Pittsburgh is about an hour and a half. Cleveland is about two hours. Buffalo is about two hours. It's five hours to um, Washington, D.C. None of that is ocean, right? So um, anything with living live sharks is really difficult to do because we don't have access to them here. Um, lucky for me, because I study teeth, I don't need the whole shark. I do pretty well with jaws and specimens and museums. But even then, there's not a lot here. So one of the biggest problems for me is access, right? I need to have time to travel to these places. When it's, even when it's not you know, a global pandemic and the collections are open, it's still uh, a pretty big time commitment to go and do that. Super awesome, but it takes a long time. And then with the fossils, the same thing is, you know, I don't do, I'm not really a field person. I'm a museum lab person. Mm -hmm. With the fossils, I and with the living sharks too, I rely a lot on other scientists to be very generous with their time and their materials and things, which I'm extremely grateful for. But it does make it more difficult to, you know, just be like, oh, I'm going to go do this thing. 
there's a lot of moving pieces that I have to coordinate, you know, my, I have kids. And so then I have to make sure that they're taken care of because they, they have been in museum collections before, but you know, seven and 11 year olds running around museum collections is not typically okay. (laughs) (laughs) Depending on the child that could be a kid in a candy store, you know, they really love that kind of thing. It could be be hard not to touch anything and I'm 27. Yeah, yeah, and we have that talk, right? So I've taken my kids to the Cleveland Museum of Natural History where there are wonderful shark fossils from the age of fishes, like the Devonian about 400 million years ago. Some of the first body fossils are there. So I'm lucky that they're only two hours away, but at the same time, I had to return some specimens. And yeah, we definitely had that in my mom voice, don't touch anything (laughs) kind of, you know? thing and you know they just thought it was they get to do stuff like that once in a while and they thought it was the best thing ever they were um they got to see um completely articulated skull of dunkleosteus which is this giant school bus sized predator from 400 million years ago this would be great if i had you know if we had video on the podcast i could hold up my little model that's on my desk but um they they ate sharks <laughs> and stuff like that and so you know, their head is a solid three feet tall. And so for my, yeah, for my kids, they, they love stuff like that. So very, and I'll be honest, I'm like a kid in the candy store mm-hmm. in the museums too. So that's, you know, the, the usual figure is less than 1% of the museum's holdings are on public display. The other like, 99%. Really? Yeah. No the other, yeah. And so the other 99% is in, you know, all the off-limits places. So even when you go, like next time you go to a museum, right, and you can do that again, right, there's basements, there's lots of wings, those aren't just offices, those are shelves of pickled fish and drawers of skulls and fossils and minerals and archaeological stuff, you know, if you're at a natural history museum, you know, just like try and figure out if you're good at the spatial stuff, like how much of the space of this giant building that I talk about outside might actually in. It's actually a pretty small part. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So I, I can see really that. cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what is the coolest specimen you've ever seen? Mm. So I think it's not shark, and I'm sorry, but That's okay. when you hear what this is, it's gonna you're gonna understand why. So I got to touch the fossil that T Rex is named for. Yeah. So, yep, it, it happens to be in Pittsburgh. And so, um, and my students got to touch it too, which was really cool. Yeah, so we call that the holotype. And so when we name a new species of something, right, whether it's a fossil or a shark um, or whatever, there's a specimen, or sometimes there's a few, um, that's called the type specimen. And that is the specimen that the species is named after. So it has the measurements, it has all the attributes. Um, and you have to, those are usually kept pretty secure, right? Because if those mm-hmm. get broken or lost, it's, that's it. So, yeah, yeah, I got to, one of the times I was working at the Carnegie Museum for research stuff with my students, they're like, you want to see the holotype of T-Rex? I'm like, yes, please. And we got, we had one finger only. It, it was, there's a, a very giddy picture of me with one finger on this T-Rex lower jaw and just, so excited. <laughs> that is exciting. I mean, to think about like that is, I mean, one, it's a T-Rex. That's so cool. Yeah. But then two, mm-hmm. you know, like, that's something that's been around, that was around millions and millions of years ago. And mm-hmm. uh, I can't even imagine that. That would be so cool. I mean, I, I freak out when I just hold like a Megalodon too, but let alone like a T-Rex. <laughs> yeah. 
Like that'd be yeah. so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of the perks of my job and my research areas. I get to do stuff like that once in a while. When you are looking at different fossils of shark teeth, and I know you try to put those puzzle pieces together of yeah. of um, you know our old species of sharks. Do you have a favorite discovery that you've had, or maybe like the dots were were connected? Yeah, and, and so again, this would be another goofy story. That's just That's my okay. life. Um, so, gosh, this was probably in it was during my master's. So, or maybe early PhD. I don't remember. Early two thousand. So we're at Panera Bread, right? And this is before they started doing baguettes. They did these sourdough rolls, mm-hmm. which I actually don't like because I think there's too much crust. I love sourdough, but it was like I want the inside part. Yes. So I didn't tend to eat them. I just sit there and play with them as you know, a mature adult would do. And <laughs> so I was poked, like pressing on it with my thumbs and poking on it. And I noticed that when my thumb went in, there were some little cracks in the crust around it, and but it didn't break the whole thing. And um, the, two, the one tooth that's been kind of driving my career and driving me a little nuts is um, a 320 million year old shark tooth from my undergrad thesis. It's a cone, it's a cauclidotus, so it's got a tall cone in the middle, and it has all these little tiny cusps going off to the side. And I've been looking, and there's a lot of teeth that look like that from 320 million years ago. And so I kind of connected the two, sitting there at Panera <laughs> with my bread that I wasn't eating. That maybe these little lateral cusplets or these side cusplets are for kind of making that crack go further and breaking open heart prey. Still haven't gotten a chance to test that, but that, again, it was just one of the most ridiculous moments of like, wasn't in the lab, didn't have any shark teeth in front of me. I was sitting there messing around with my roll. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I, someday I'm hoping to see if that actually works. It should be. Now that I know more about mechanics and stuff, I this should work, but I haven't tested it yet. So. <laughs> That's so interesting, but it's funny that you say that like you weren't in a lab, you weren't in, in the field. I interviewed Christine Stump a couple weeks ago, <laughs> and one of her biggest aha moments was literally they were out at a restaurant, and she drew something on an, a, a napkin, and then they're like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is going to work. So I think it's so yeah. interesting that, you know, you don't have to be in your in your lab or out in the field to be able to <laughs> – to have those moments um but yeah no it's like when i'm drifting off to sleep when i'm in the shower or apparently panera but i used to sleep and i still do i keep a little pad of paper and a pen next to my bed just for that stuff because it always seems to be when i'm drifting off to sleep and then i don't want to turn on the light and everything so i'll just grab the pen and hope it's going to be legible and you know make sense in the morning (laughs) (laughs) that's actually a good idea though to do so you don't remember Mm -hmm. your, your your midnight thoughts (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it makes me go to sleep because then I'm not sitting there obsessing about it. I can be like, all right, I'll deal with that in the morning. It'll be fine. It's a very smart idea. I actually might might use that for myself. <laughs> <laughs> so you've obviously been looking at many many types of fossils, but then you also are in mm-hmm. the academic world mm-hmm. as well. Is there something like being? Were you always on the route to academics, or is it something that you didn't expect? I was planning on teaching high school. Mm-hmm. So my mom is a teacher. Um, she taught kindergarten in first grade. My sisters are teachers. One is middle school art. I don't know how she does middle school, but more power to her. My other sister does third grade. So 
teaching was always a thing mm-hmm. for me. I mean, my mom would bring us into her classroom. I'd come home on spring break from undergrad and teach her kids about dinosaurs or first graders and stuff. So even when I was a kid, it was always teaching something, even though the topic bounced around. And I loved chemistry in high school. Like I said, we didn't get along so well once I got to college, but that's okay. So the plan was always teaching. And then when I switched my major to geology, you know, I didn't take earth science in high school. They wouldn't let us if we were in the honors track or anything like that. That wasn't for us. So I didn't get to do that. I didn't know we even like how to do that. And then I started doing research and went, oh, this is the thing. I did, I knew people did, did that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have the books on dinosaurs and stuff. And it, I didn't know how, though. And mm-hmm. so it was a really a lot with my um, undergrad advisor of him kind of guiding me and saying, well, this is the next step you would take. So um, when nobody in my family went to grad school. Where I did, except for an uncle. I have an uncle who got an MBA, but it, and my mom and I got our master's at roughly the same time with her as a teacher. But no one like went to grad school for science, right? Which is a whole different thing than an MBA or a master's in education. Spent a lot of kind of figuring it out as I go along and um, having excellent mentors to help me with that. That's great to hear, um, which actually is a really good segue into my next question, which is going to be who or what is your best resource? Hands down, um, I have a group of colleagues that are also in the shark world, and I don't even know what I'd do without them. Mm-hmm. And they're not the people I went to grad school with. Where we were, we connected. Um, we met through the American Lacerbrink Society, so that professional society for that a lot of shark scientists join. And we are definitely support system for each other. Um, we're all at roughly ish the same kind of career stage. I'm a little bit ahead. I know I can always hop on like Messenger and vent to them or ask their advice. And I know they're going to be honest with me and we do that for each other. And it's really, really helpful. Um, we even had some collaborations now, which is nice. We have stuff in process and it's just, you know, there's, because I'm at a small college, there's no other shark people here, mm-hmm. not even any other marine people here. There's a social scientist who does some marine stuff that just started back this year, but I'm it. <laughs> so I don't necessarily have that here. So I'm really grateful for things like social media that allow me to connect with folks to that support system. That's really great. Can you do any sneak peeks of what those collaborations might be? Or are they all Ooh. still in? So one, I can't. But, um, okay. <laughs> you know, it's interesting with um, a lot of the collaborations that are going on. Um, there's going to be a new edition of the biology of sharks and their relatives. And so I've been collaborating with some of these folks on a couple book chapters for that one on shark paleontology and one on um, shark biomechanics, which is really exciting. So we just turned in our first draft of the paleontology one last week. So oh, it'll amazing. be coming eventually. The biomechanics one is getting close. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have that, um, and then I'm collaborating on another project that's actually very exciting, where we're analyzing as many episodes of Shark Week as we can in terms of what sharks are featured and what kind of conservation messaging is there, is any, um, and, and, you know, different kinds of content to kind of, you know, we've been saying for years that, like, Shark Week has gotten kind of sensationalist and they've been moving away from the science. So we're actually going to try and figure out if that gut feeling is really true. So that's coming down the pipe. 
we're doing another project where we're doing some demographic analysis of shark scientists who are in uh, the American Alaska Society. Mm -hmm. So even though I'm a scientist, right, this stuff is very peripheral. So um, I'm finding that the further along I get in my science career, the less science, I'm using finger quotes, people can't see the fingers close, I know, but the less of that kind of typical science I'm doing, I'm still doing tooth stuff and fossil stuff, but now there's these kind of summary chapters and looking more at equity and diversity in the field of sharp science and the pop culture and social science aspects of them, really enjoying them, but I kind of miss doing the science too. <laughs> I've even seen a shift in the last, like, scientists are being more accessible to to people so they are able you know that it's not you have to go yeah. read that paper to be able to learn learn more about it and being able to mm -hmm. um you know go on on twitter or, in, or, or on instagram to be able to you know see what they're up to and i think that's great and it makes it then yeah. more it makes it more applicable but then also being able you know someone that maybe isn't a small town like where you are right. currently working that like oh i can do this mm -hmm. or, I, or i can try to relate to it yeah, and I think, you know, I'm seeing more scientists who are interested in working with K through 12 as well and not doing it to check off a box on their NSF grant, right, for uh, broader impacts or, you know, to do some sort of thing that they need to do to get promoted or whatever, but folks are genuinely wanting to work with the communities, whether they're near the ocean or not, and kind of, you know, especially with kids, you know, like the kids here, they can't take a field trip to Pittsburgh or Cleveland or wherever to go to the Carnegie Museum or the Cleveland Museum of Natural History or the Cleveland Aquarium even. Because mm -hmm. so that's a two-hour bus ride and a two-hour back. And then how much, there's not, a, they're barely there, yeah. right? And so in a lot of kids, I know even from growing up, I grew up in Chicago with easy access to the field museum and stuff. But that costs money, right? And if you don't have that spare money to go, then you're not learning about that stuff. So seeing a lot of scientists wanting to work with K through 12 students and the teachers and get into the classrooms has been wonderful. And that's something I've been doing a lot of here um, at Allegheny as well for um, and super fun. I got to do uh, a Girl Scout program and my daughter's Girl Scout, I was a Girl Scout. We had 35 Girl Scouts learning about sharks using Guild Club stuff. So I did that in conjunction with the Guild Club that's and amazing. they had a blast. They all got their patches. They all have patches on their sashes that say Girls Club mm -hmm. now. And I grabbed shark jobs from my lab, and it was such a blast. And so it's fun for us. But it's like I see some of those girls now because it's been, again, it's been a while. And I see them, and they're like, I remember you. We did shark stuff. And I remember this, and I remember this. They actually remember the stuff we learned. It's so cool. That is cool. I mean, it just shows that how much, you know, that even though it's just a uh, uh, I don't know, maybe like an hour, two hour ex exercise, yeah. but I mean, it sticks mm -hmm. and it just shows that how yeah. meaningful it is and what the work that you're doing, you know, that mm -hmm. it is a meaningful thing and it is impact. Mm -hmm. That's the word I'm looking for, the impact yeah. On, yeah. <laughs> on them as well. Mm -hmm. um, so to round out our interview, I want to ask you just a few yeah. more, more questions. Um, but the one sure. question I'm really interested in hearing your answer is with all of um, the dinosaur sharks that you study, is there one that you would like if it was alive today like what is the dinosaur shark you would love to see in real life oh man i well first of all i want to go back to my original shark from undergrad because i want to know how it worked right mm -hmm. and so i 
I have a running joke with my students that the first thing I always want is a time machine so I can go back in time. But then my hopes are dashed by, dashed by our physics professor. She assures me you can't go backwards, you can only go forwards in time. So <laughs> that was a bummer. But I'd really love to see Clodotus just so I could see how it's using its mouth and how it's using its teeth. I think that would be my number one. But I also want to see, um, and I could go back to the same time point and see both of them. Um, there's this other one named Stethicanthus that is also pre-dinosaur, and they have what looks like a scrub brush on top of their heads, and only the males. And so I, I want to know, like, how does that affect your swimming mechanics? How are they, are they actually using that for anything, or is it just some sort of ornamentation, kind of like a peacock tail or something like that? And so, but yeah, they live at roughly the same time, so I could go see them both at the same time. <laughs> there you go. You kill two, well, two sharks with one stone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's really cool. And then for our last thing to round out, I would love to know um, what advice would you give to your younger self coming up in this job? I would give myself, I mean, my so my whole career has been like total serendipity, mm-hmm. right? So like, oh, you like vertebrates? Here's this tooth that's driven your entire career and, and things like that. Um, but I think the biggest advice, I think I, you know, as a kid, even though I wore my dinosaur stuff and everything and definitely was like the weird kid, right? I, and I try and do this with my daughters, reinforce that everyone's kind of weird in their own way. And what these people think of you is not going to matter in the long run. And you should just love what you love and um, be okay with that. Um, Cause it, you know, it's, I've made a career out of it, which is bananas. I study sharks and fossils and I get to do things like this podcast and Shark Week and who's like, like that's nothing I would have ever predicted for myself. Um, and so, you know, sticking with what you love and, and not bending to peer pressure, I think it's important. I love that. Yeah. Do what you love. I think that's a great way to end the interview today. So again, thank you so much, Lisa, for coming and being able to talk about your work and what you do um, within our science community. So thank you so much. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. And if people want to find me, I'm easily Googleable. Um, (laughs) They can find me um, on Twitter as White Knack Lab, or like I said, just enter my name in Google. You will find, easily find me. (laughs) Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Lisa Whitenack. Her advice at the end really resonated with me and with her saying to do what you love and to not let anyone try to change your mind about it. It's definitely a piece of advice that resonates with me, and I hope it does with you as well. If you would like to follow her, as she said, you can follow her on Twitter at the Whitenack Lab, and you can spell that W H I T E N A C K Lab, L A B. I hope you do follow her. She has really great information that she does put out on her Twitter feed about science, her work, and all of other things sharky in our science community. So please give her a follow. You will not regret it. And I hope you all have a great week. So until then, continue to explore and stay inspired. And we'll catch you on the next podcast. Bye, everyone.